Father, certainly this is uh, one of the more challenging books with uh, much fierce language and uh, just pray that uh, we would take the message uh, for our time from this book and uh, as always we're seeking to find Christ in every book and pray that that will be our discovery today also. Amen. All right, so again, where we are. We've gone through Elijah, Elisha, Jonah last week, and now uh, Amos, and I've highlighted just some of the kings that we're going to talk about here associated with uh, Amos. Amos actually lived in Judah, but kind of right on the border with Israel, so his message was for uh, the kingdom of uh, the northern ten tribes here, Israel. That's why I put him in this column. Okay, And so there's really one specific topic, a very broad topic that I want to bring up today. I'm not even really going to get into the message that he had in terms of what was wrong with the kingdom of Israel. I think we'll do that uh, next week. Okay, so just a a few little introductory things about Amos as a person, and then we'll discuss uh, this topic of judgment, which is very much at the forefront in Amos. So it opens up this way. These are the words of Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa. Again, that was in Judah, but close to the border with um, Israel. And two years before the earthquake, when Isaiah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel, God revealed to Amos all these things about Israel. And uh, this is kind of like uh, Richard Bauckham's book, How Do We Know That the Gospels Are Really a Credible Account? And there are lots of different ways. Uh, We've talked about this uh, before. But here we have this, well, two years before the earthquake. And what do we throw that in? Well, we know that that would be based on, you know, the timing of the kings around 750 B.C. And so we just read on in the Bible. We come to the book of Zechariah. And you will flee as your ancestors did when the earthquake struck in the time of King Uzziah of Judah. Uh, These kinds of uh, incidental facts that are just kind of thrown out there. So many specific details. Kings, people, um, superfluous details that aren't really necessary, perhaps, for the message. This is actually what makes uh, an account credible, okay? And there's nothing like uh, legendary writings, um, nothing like the Gnostic Gospels, which are so uh, ethereal and mystical and so on. Anyway, that's just kind of a side point. But we have this earthquake, and and we can date that uh, quite specifically based on uh, the, the kings. Now, I want to skip forward to a little bit about Amos, just because it gives us a few details and would suggest that Amos was not a very popular uh, prophet. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, then sent a report to King Jeroboam of Israel. Amos is plotting against you among the people. His speeches will destroy the country. This is what he says. Jeroboam will die in battle, and the people of Israel will be taken away from their land into exile. Amaziah then said to Amos, That's enough, prophet. Go on back to Judah and do your preaching there. Let them pay you for it. Don't prophesy here at Bethel anymore. This is the king's place of worship, the national temple. And Amos answered, I am not the kind of prophet who prophesies for pay. I'm a herdsman, and I take care of fig trees. But the Lord took me from my work as a shepherd and ordered me to come and prophesy to his people Israel. So now listen to what the Lord says. You tell me to stop prophesying, to stop raving against the people of Israel. And so, Amaziah, the Lord says to you, Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your children will be killed in war. Your land will be divided up and given to others, and you yourself will die in a heathen country. And a discussion perhaps we could have is, did God make it that way? Okay, or is um, 
you know, Amos, you're given prophetic insight into uh, what would happen. But maybe that's a discussion for another time. And the people of Israel will certainly be taken away from their own land into, into exile. So Amos, Amos is just very um, harsh here in, in what he says. Very clear, this is what's going to happen, and obviously uh, was not very popular uh, because of it. Okay, so here in a, in a uh, well-known book here about uh, the Hebrew prophets, we just have kind of a nice little summary that this is a series of judgment speeches, a long oracle of judgment here in the book of Amos. So that's kind of uh, our subject. Okay, and perhaps Israel was happy with the initial message of Amos because it's all about the other nations. Okay, and pretty much uh, condemning the other nations. The Lord says, the people of Damascus have sinned again and again. Damascus uh, was the capital of Syria. Okay, not Assyria, that was Nineveh, but the capital of Syria. And for this, I will certainly punish them. They treated the people of Gilead with savage cruelty. So I will send fire upon the palace built by King Haziel, and I will burn down the fortresses of King Ben-Hadad. I will smash the city gates of Damascus and remove the inhabitants of Avon Valley and the ruler of Bethadon. The people of Syria will be taken away as prisoners to the land of Kerr. Okay, so initially we have a message here against Syria. Okay, and just again, as a little footnote, we want to know, well, did this really happen? Uh, remember, 750 B.C., that's about the time that uh, Amos had this message. And again, this is a side point, but we go back to 2 Kings to find out, well, what really happened with Syria? Okay, and we have this battle here where King Rezin of Syria, King Pekah of Israel attacked Jerusalem, besieged it, but could not defeat Ahaz, okay, the king of Judah. Ahaz sent men, men to Tiglath-Pileser, if I'm saying that right, the emperor of Assyria, with this message. I am your devoted servant. Come and rescue me from the kings of Syria and of Israel who are attacking me. And the king, in answer to Ahaz's plea, marched out with his army against Damascus, captured it, killed King Rezin, and took the people to Kerr as prisoners. And this was exactly um, here about uh, almost 20 years before Amos gave this message. So uh, I've tried to mention this as we go along, but it's interesting how much uh, prophecy there is in the Old Testament. Here we had Amos give a message. This is what's going to happen to Syria. They're going to go off. Uh, the people go off to Kerr as prisoners. Okay, we look elsewhere in the Bible, and uh, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Here's what I'd like to talk about um, here during our time together. Now, this is the same slide here with um, Syria, and this is repetitive for every nation, but just notice the emphasis. I will punish them. The God talking. I will send fire upon the palace. I will burn down the fortresses. I will smash the city gates. Okay, why is this relevant? Well, you know, we want to take the Bible just as it reads. Okay, and uh, certainly most interpretations of Revelation, for example. Well, we want to take that exactly as it reads. Okay, but here we have, what we, how do we want to build our model here? Well, we want to take the whole Bible. We want to understand, okay, here was a message for Syria. God said, I will do it, I will do it, I will burn them down, etc. We, we read on what happened. We just read in 2 Kings that it was the king of Assyria that destroyed uh, the Syrians. Let's uh, just give some more examples. Tyre, it's very similar to the people of Tyre. The Lord says, the people of Tyre have sinned again and again, and for this I will certainly punish them. They carried off a whole nation into exile in the land of Edom and did not keep the treaty of friendship they had made. So I will send fire upon the city walls of Tyre. Okay? Uh, did that actually happen? Do we have uh, 
a historical record of God sending fire down to destroy Tyre. Let's go on to another nation, Edom. The Lord says, the people of Edom have sinned again and again, and for this I will certainly punish them. They hunted down their relatives, the Israelites, and showed them no mercy. Their anger had no limits, and they never let it die. So I will send fire upon the city, okay, and so on. Very similar. Again, uh, do we have a historical record of that? Okay, and um, with the Edomites, um, this is interesting that um, uh, what a very vivid passage, one of the most um, intense passages in the book of Revelation, uh, actually comes from something that was written about the Edomites. Okay, so uh, we don't have time to go through this in, in a lot of detail. Maybe I'll ask Dr. Bauckham about this. But here's a passage you're probably all familiar with here in the third angel's message, Revelation 14. They will drink God's wine, the wine of his fury, which he has poured at full strength into the cup of his anger. All who do this will be tormented in fire and sulfur before the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of the fire that torments them goes up forever and ever. There's no relief day or night for those who worship the beast in its image, for anyone who has the mark of its name. Okay, that's, that's a very intense passage. The question is, how do we understand it? Um, you know, the book of Revelation is almost entirely uh, Old Testament. I mean, it's, it just draws from the whole rest of the Bible. And so uh, one point I'd like to make is we can't understand things like this in a vacuum without going back to the source. What, what is the imagery uh, that is used here? And, and the imagery for this is what happened to the kingdom of Edom. Okay, this comes from uh, Isaiah. So we need to go back. We need to read the Isaiah passage. What happened to the Edomites and how do we apply this passage? Oh, and, and first I have to give you a, a comment. This is, how, this is an evangelist, I won't share his name, but uh, who interpreted Revelation uh, this way. In Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is the guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy that I can beat up. And uh, I, I'm bringing this up as a, as a serious point here uh, because... You know, for, for most of us, you just read through the book of Revelation, you, we have these, uh, you know, very vivid uh, descriptions. Uh, how do we interpret that? And um, here, you know, the interpretation is, you know, that's a God that I could worship. You know, God that would do those kinds of things. And notice the last sentence here, I can't worship a guy that I can beat up. Okay, exactly what did we do to Jesus 2,000 years ago? Um, you know, it, this would seem a, quite a remarkable statement. Can we worship a God that we could beat up? And interesting here, where is the sword? Is it in Jesus' hand in the book of Revelation? Coming out of his mouth? Is there something significant, a sword that comes out of your mouth? Is that the usual sword that uh, uh, you use to slaughter people? Is there a meaning associated with that? Well, let's go back and talk about this passage uh, about the Edomites, and it's from Isaiah 34. The rivers of Edom will turn into tar, the soil will burn into sulfur, the whole country will burn like tar, it will burn day and night, and smoke will rise from it forever, forever. The land will lie waste age after age, and no one will ever travel through it again. So question again, was Edom, here we're reading Isaiah about Edom, something that really had, there, there was a kingdom, the Edomites, they were destroyed. Okay, but were they burned? Were they burned day and night, forever and ever? Is Edom still burning? Okay, again, should we, in, should we take passages from the Old Testament like this and should that 
factor into how we understand the book of Revelation. Um, I think it should, okay? But, but again, we're, we're trying to, as much as we can, incorporate everything into one model of understanding the Bible and, and not just uh, pick and choose here and there. Let's read on. Ammon. The Lord says the people of Ammon have sinned again and again, and for this I will certainly punish them. In their wars for more territory, they even ripped open pregnant women, so I will send fire upon the city walls. Okay, and uh, very, very similar. Moab. The Lord says the people of Moab have sinned again and again, and for this I will certainly punish them. They dishonored the bones of the kings of Edom by burning them to ashes. I will send fire. Notice every single passage, God is sending fire. I will send fire upon the land of Moab. The people of Moab will die in the noise of battle while the soldiers are shouting and trumpets are sounding. I will kill the ruler of Moab and all the leaders of the land. So our question is, again, how was God involved in all of these things? It's very clear here. It's unambiguous. God's going to do it very, very directly. Okay, and Judah. Remember, this is a message to Israel. So first we're going through all of the other nations, and now before turning to Israel... There's a message for Judah that's virtually identical. The Lord says the people of Judah have sinned again and again, and for this I will certainly punish them. They have despised my teachings, <clears throat> have not kept my commands. They've been led astray by the same false gods that their ancestors served. So I will send fire upon Judah and burn down their fortresses. Now here we can be incredibly specific because we have just chapters and chapters of exactly what happened to Judah. Okay, so <clears throat> given here the message, which was um, a couple hundred years before Judah was actually destroyed, what does this mean? God will send fire upon Judah. <clears throat> and so again, looking at our timeline here, remember, Israel is going to be carted off to Assyria in 722 BC. And after that, we have only Judah and Benjamin left. And so we have a few kings here, starting with Manasseh. And then we have three invasions of Jerusalem. Okay, and finally in 586 B.C., the last invasion, and Jerusalem, and everyone is brought out into Babylonian uh, captivity. Okay, and so we have, again, lots of details from Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah about exactly what happened to the kingdom of Judah. Okay, what exactly happened? So let's read Jeremiah. Okay, and the words here in Jeremiah 21, it's very similar to what we just read in Amos. I will fight against you. This is God talking. With all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury, I will kill everyone living in this city. People and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease. Okay, now, which is it? Here, God is going to kill them, and then anyone who stays in the city will be killed by war, starvation, disease. But those who go out and surrender to the Babylonians who are now attacking the city will not be killed. They will at least escape with their life. I have made up my mind not to spare this city, but to destroy it. And so much mixed in. For those of you who have been here, when we've talked about uh, God's wrath, um, always in that context, we find words like this. It will be given over, handed over, forsaken, given up, given over to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. Okay, so does God do it? Did the king of Babylon do it? And, of course, you all know the answer here, what happened. But just reading on in Jeremiah 21, listen to what I, the Lord, am saying. See that justice is done every day. Protect the person who's being cheated from the one who's cheating him. If you don't, the evil you are doing will make my anger, there it is again, burn like fire that cannot be put out. 
You, Jerusalem, are sitting high above the valleys like a rock rising above the plain, but I will fight against you. You say that no one can attack you or break through your defenses, but I will punish you for what you've done. I will set your palace on fire, and the fire will burn down everything around it. It's so many times, and if we included Ezekiel, again, I will burn Jerusalem. Okay, but it, it's described both ways so many times. Here's Jeremiah 34. The Lord, the God of Israel, told me to go and say to King Zedekiah of Judah, I, the Lord, will hand this city over. Okay, there it is again. Give over, hand over, forsake to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it down. Okay, and if we just read the rather dry uh, account here, the historical account in 2 Chronicles, um, it's very clear who burned Jerusalem to the ground. The king of Babylonia looted the temple, the temple treasury, the wealth of the king and his officials, took everything back to Babylon. He burned down the temple and the city with all its palaces and its wealth and broke down the city wall. Okay, so it's clear who did the, the burning in this case. So what we're trying to understand is God's use of these words. I'm going to do it. I'm going to punish. I'm going to burn it down. <clears throat> well, and then we come to Israel. And when God turns to Israel, it's, it's kind of surprising uh, the words that he uses initially, because it's a very harsh book. But it start out, starts out this way. People of Israel, listen to this message, which the Lord has spoken about you, the entire nation that he brought out of Egypt. Of all the nations on earth, you are the only one I have known and cared for. Now he's got right next door the kingdom of Judah, who is somewhat relatively more loyal than Israel, but you are the only one I have known and cared for. That is what makes your sins so terrible, and that is why I must punish you for them. And I'm going to go through these verses quickly just to convince you of the very fierce language um, here to Israel. So then, people of Israel, I am going to punish you, and because I am going to do this, get ready to face my judgment. God is the one who made the mountains and created the winds. He makes his thoughts known to people. He changes day into night. He walks on the heights of the earth. This is his name, the Lord God Almighty. And God's uh, power and sovereignty is, is very much in the forefront here of all of these passages. Go to the Lord and you will live. If you do not go, he will sweep down like fire on the people of Israel. The fire will burn up the people of Bethel and no one will be able to put it out. You are doomed, you that twist justice and cheat people out of their rights. The Lord made the stars, and it's all rather poetic. He turns darkness into daylight and day into night. He calls for the waters of the sea. He pours them out on the earth. His name is the Lord. He brings destruction on the mighty and their strongholds. And in Amos 7, I had another vision from the Lord. In it, I saw him standing beside a wall that had been built with the use of a plumb line. And there was a plumb line in his hand. Okay, and he asked me, Amos, what do you see? A plumb line, I answered. Then he said, I'm, going to, I'm using it to show that my people are like a wall that is out of line. I will not change my mind again about punishing them. The places where Isaac's descendants worship will be destroyed. The holy places of Israel will be left in ruins. I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to an end. Okay, and, and uh, coming to the end here, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, he gave the command, strike the tops of the temple columns so hard that the foundations will shake. Break them off and let them fall on the heads of the people. I will kill the rest of the people in war. No one will get away. Not one will escape. 
Even if they dig their way down to the world of the dead, I will catch them. Even if they climb up to heaven, I will bring them down. If they hide on the top of Mount Carmel, I will search for them and catch them. If they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, I will command the sea monster to bite them. What do you think about this language? It's really unfair for me to lump all of these together in one uh, dense uh, passage here. So we, we need uh, uh, another week here to give a, a balanced picture. But, you know, this is the... God's trying to get their attention, that's for sure. And this passage finish, finishes off, If they are taken away into captivity by their enemies, I will order them to be put to death. I am determined to destroy them, not to help them. What do you think about that? The sovereign Lord Almighty touches the earth and it quakes. All who live there mourn. The whole world rises and falls like the Nile River. The Lord builds his home in the heavens and over the earth. He puts the dome of the sky. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the earth. His name is the Lord. God does everything in Amos. He does everything. He creates day, night, sea. He destroys. If you turn to him, he'll make you prosper. Okay, he absolutely is uh, sovereign over everything that happens, as the description is given in this book. So what I would like to do is just very quickly review a little bit of some concepts we've talked about. One is that in the Bible, um, God is very often described as doing uh, what he allows to occur. And I think we'd have to say that from, from some of these examples. I'm going to burn Jerusalem to the ground. Well, he allowed, could we say, the king of Babylonia to burn Jerusalem to the ground. And the, the other point I would just like to make here about the language here is that God will speak a language we can understand. And when we're very hard of hearing, as I think these people were, God will speak a very uh, violent language, if necessary, um, to, to reach people. And I tried to think of an illustration here, but just imagine here, you know, you have children. I imagine one of my children um, who have, uh, if we make a parallel here, have chosen another set of parents, have completely rebelled. They're going the wrong direction. And you watch your child, you know, you pour out love, you do all kinds of things, and your child is about ready to walk off a, a spiritual or, let's say, a physical cliff in this case, uh, would you be willing to, to thunder, to say, uh, you know what, I'll beat you within an inch of your life if you take one step further? Okay, would you do that for your child? I think that's uh, one way we could consider looking at uh, Amos. I, I don't have the verse here, but in Hosea, uh, I know I've quoted several times before, God said, my people are as stubborn as mules, how can I speak to them like lambs in a meadow? We're dealing with stubborn mules here, and you have to use words that uh, would perhaps uh, even cause fear in, in a people who are very, very hardened. But on this first point here, if I could very quickly turn back just to things that we've seen this year in terms of God described as doing something that he allowed to occur. I think this was our first Bible study of the year. We were talked about uh, Samuel, where God is always sending evil spirits. Okay, the Lord's spirit left Saul, and an evil spirit sent by the Lord tormented, tormented him. Does God send evil spirits? It's repeated three times where God sent an evil spirit against Saul. Okay, an evil spirit from the Lord took control of Saul. Okay, does God really operate that way? And remember, uh, Nabal had a stroke. He was paralyzed. We said that a stroke with paralysis is about a 78% mortality. And here's the description. Some 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Okay, the stroke wasn't enough. God had to uh, finish him off here. 
Here's David's description of how Saul would die. And let's just listen to the description. David talking, by the living Lord, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul. How is God going to kill Saul? Either when his time comes to die a natural death, now God is going to kill Saul by letting him die a natural death, or when he dies in battle. In either of those cases, this is how God is going to kill Saul. Okay, isn't that interesting the way David understood Saul's demise? And you know how Saul died. He committed suicide, fell on his, fell on his sword. Okay, and the description after he dies, so the Lord killed him. Okay, did God lay, lay a hand on Saul? Committed suicide. Okay, and I think the most compelling evidence uh, at all, just in terms of this, want to point to one specific case, is we have the description here in Samuel that the Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. That God uh, would appear to tempt to evil in this case. And we know from elsewhere that God doesn't do that. But the, the same description elsewhere in Chronicles, Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. We have the same event described in polar opposite ways. I don't think this destroys the authority of the Bible or is an attack on inspiration. Um, I think, um, you know, we've, we've mentioned that uh, Satan is so much uh, veiled um, here in the Old Testament, okay, and, and God just does everything, okay, and uh, I, I think if we put all of this together, what did Jesus do? The first thing he did was to defeat Satan, brought one out to the desert, and Satan is all over the place in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament. Okay, God has to uh, kind of slowly unpackage things, I think, so that we can understand. And uh, this verse in Isaiah, God creates light and darkness. He does it all. So we've talked about this concept, which I'm not going to go into now, but the relative absence of Satan in the Old Testament, New Testament, he's, uh, he's around every corner, it seems like. And Jesus is describing very much this, this conflict with a very real adversary. Okay, he's veiled in the Old Testament. We need to... I think bring all that back to these descriptions of God sending evil spirits and God, God tempting David to give a, sen to give a census. Okay, we need to, to bring the adversary into uh, some of these accounts. Okay, but our subject is uh, judgment, really, and these harsh words of judgment in the book of Amos. And uh, one, one point that, that I that I hope you're getting from this Bible study is that the Bible is not just on a s one line of truth all the way through. That every verse is of equal, um, equal revelation of truth as uh, every other verse. Okay, and uh, Jesus clearly uh, would, would point in that direction. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, no. Love your enemies, pray for them. You've heard it said, and he gave all of these examples. It was this way, but not anymore. And we gave, we've given all the examples in the past, how God allowed for polygamy and all kinds of things. Clearly, that's not the ideal. Okay, so we need to see the Bible as building towards some pinnacle of truth, or at least our understanding of truth. Okay, and so Jesus' words, like, well, you know what? We've always had this kind of servant relationship. But I no longer call you servants any longer, because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. That is, that is Jesus saying, you know what, the, the relationship between God and humans, it has very much been master-servant. Okay, that is not the ideal. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to establish something that is different. I'm trying to bring you in a different direction. 
And the night before Jesus died, he told his disciples, I have much more to tell you, but now it would be too much for you to bear. Okay, you can't handle the truth. And I think that's really the essence of the problem. We can't handle the truth. And so God has to kind of gradually just nudge us in the right direction. Okay, and, and the last uh, verse on this, where Jesus would say, I've used figures of speech to tell you these things, dark speech, riddles, but the time will come when I will not use figures of speech, but will speak with you plainly about the Father, which would suggest a lot of what we have learned about the Father, it's certainly not plain. It's not clear. And now Jesus is saying, you know what? I'd like to speak with you plainly, clearly about the Father. So what I want to have you think about here, I'm going to contrast a little bit judgment in Amos and judgment in the Gospel of John. And I had to do a lot of searching to find this picture. Uh, this was in a book that I had as a child. Maybe some of you recognize it. Um, but maybe just ask you to think. Uh, when you think about the judgment, uh, what is your mental image? Uh, what's, what picture do you have? What is the judgment like? What will it be like, uh, the judgment? Um, and maybe this isn't an accurate portrayal of the judgment, but when you look at this picture, uh, who do you imagine as being the judge? Who is the judge? You imagine someone way off in there. Who would you say is the judge? God? Hey, who is this? Hey. And um, do we have someone against us in the judgment? Is there someone for us, someone against us? Uh, is the Father for us or against us? Is he back here making accusations? Um, and I've often heard um, things like, well, Jesus is our friend in court. Uh, does that mean that the Father is not our friend in court? Are we, putting a, are we distinguishing between the Father and the Son? One's for us and one is not for us. Um, I think that's uh, um, destructive to have, you know, begin to put a split in the Trinity. And, and Jesus' repeated message, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Okay, uh, so many times saying, he's just like me. Okay, we are the same. So judgment in the Gospel of John, um, I think there's so much on judgment. And I think it really challenges some ways that we've thought about this. This was Jesus' conversation with uh, Nicodemus. And just kind of out of the blue, um, he, he comes with this. He says, indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is so dense with meaning here, but here's a, just a remarkable thing. And this is the judgment. Uh, the Bible translation I usually uh, use says, and this is how the judgment works. I mean, it's about as plain a statement as you can have. This is what the judgment is like. That the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Now, what is judgment in this passage? This is how the judgment works. There's revelation. There's light. And the judgment is, how do you respond to the light? Do you come into the light? Do you reject the light? Jesus came as the light of the world. Okay, to reveal to us uh, a true knowledge of God. And uh, this caused people to either come to him or to very passionately reject him. This is how the judgment works. Uh, judgment in the Gospel of John is 
entirely revelatory. It is how we respond to uh, a revelation about God. Okay, I think this, this point gets more compelling. Um, uh, maybe I won't, uh, I'll skip over this quote just because we're, we're running short on time here. But again, who is the judge? Boy, the Gospel of John is just our best place to say, who is the judge? How about this? John 5.22, the Father judges no one. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment. So the Father is not the judge, the Son is the judge, okay, and those who uh, believe in Jesus do not come under judgment, okay, um, and there's uh, more evidence for this. Jesus said, I came into the world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. This is the same concept, I came as light into the world. Okay, to bring people to decision, basically. And some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you are blind, you would have sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. So again, in this description, judgment is how do you respond to revelation? And this is the ultimate revelation. God in human form. How, how do we respond to that? How do they respond to that? Okay, and uh, these are really good quotes, but I'm going I'm to skip over this because I think this is um, the most clear uh, description that, that rounds all of this out. This is what the judgment is like. This, these are Jesus' last words to the Pharisees. Then Jesus cried aloud, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. This is like saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you believe in me, you believe in the Father. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. You see the Father in Jesus. We are the same. And again, I have come as light into the world. Same description. So that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. And, and here is remarkable. We just said the Father is not the judge. The Son is the judge. And now Jesus says, I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. Now, people who do not hear his words and do not keep them, I do not judge them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. <clears throat> The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. Okay, now we'll get it straight. Who is the judge? On the last day, now that's pretty good, on the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. Okay, what does that mean to be judged by the word? For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I think in this context, Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is how the judgment works. I don't judge anyone. On the last day, the word, what word? Jesus' revelation of the Father. Um, this will be the judge. Okay, and so what is the word? I think in context, believing Jesus' revelation of the Father. Do we really believe that the Almighty God <clears throat> is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be. Okay, so the Word. Remember, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1 opens it. So, so amazing. The Word became human, made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, not a physical brightness, but the glory of the Father's one and only Son. 
Okay, and no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. <clears throat> and so I think, uh, again, we're, we're trying to say that the, the, the judgment here is a very big subject, but I think that God was, he was revealing to the children of Israel, gave them lots of love, gave them lots of harsh words. They rejected it. That was a judgment of sort. Uh, in Jesus, we see the light come into the world, and people either came to the light or fled from the light. That was a judgment. And so if I could just uh, have you bear with me here for one more passage, we want to ask, what actually happened to Israel? We have all these hard words, I will judge you, today is your judgment, okay? And we have to skip forward to Hosea, but I think this whole passage describes a judgment of sorts. And it's very tender. The Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. I called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. Remember, judgment is revelation. It is love. In a sense, God is pouring out judgment on these people to decide, brought them out of Egypt, you know, part of the Red Sea, did all these things, put up with their rebellion. That my people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. It's not all harsh in the Old Testament. I mean, we've read through the story and we've seen how tenderly God just put up with their rebellion, did you know, all kinds of things to try to win them to his side. But they refused to return to me, and so they must return to Egypt and Assyria will rule them. <clears throat> War will sweep through their cities and break down the city gates. It will destroy my people because they do what they themselves think best. They insist on turning away from me. They will cry out because of the yoke that is on them, but no one will lift it from them. And here, can you not hear the tears in God's voice? How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? Okay, and we'll read the rest of this passage later, but um, God poured out his love, and in Amos we see him desperately, I think, shouting at his people, Okay, all of this is judgment to bring people to decision. And as they finally go off into captivity, how can I give them up? How can I abandon them? Um, I think uh, if we put the whole Bible together, we actually can uh, make a case that God is just like Jesus, even with these words that we have in Amos. So we'll uh, cover part two in Amos uh, next week. Let's pray. Dear Father, again, um, I, I sense that on such a large uh, subject here that uh, is just... Uh, superficial in terms of um, all that we could understand about this, but yet uh, pray that even in the face of uh, words that are in the book of Amos and elsewhere, uh, help us to have wisdom and understanding. May Jesus Christ become the center of all truth for each person here. May we use that light to, um, to understand these things, to enter into close uh, friendship and intimacy with you, and ultimately our desire is to reveal your love to all those around us. Amen.